Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 11. Follow as I read, starting in verse 41. We started this story last week with Lazarus and that great, uh, wonderful raising of him from the dead. We're going to start there and continue on the story this week. So we'll start in verse 41, and we read this. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him or arrest him. As we consider the worth of your soul and we consider this passage of Scripture, we start with this incredible setting and the miraculous event. We've just read part of that story Jesus had just done the most notable miracle ever in front of a large crowd of people. I think you would agree with me, there's nothing too much more spectacular than raising somebody from the dead who's been dead four days. He's been dead so long, there's a big group of mourners gathered around to, to, to mourn his passing. And, and his own sister says, Lord, he's already stinking or decomposing. And Jesus just says, come forth. I mean, that's an incredible event. Can you imagine being there? I mean, you, you've probably seen some incredible things in your lifetime that kind of made your jaw drop down. But that would be just one of the most spectacular ever, if not the most spectacular. Some of these people participated, this large crowd of people participated in such a way that nobody could deny the reality. You know, when you ask the question, why did they have to loose him and let him go? 
You know, some people have said, well, you know, God's not going to do what we can do. I think that that's true, but not in this passage. What he's really saying is, you folks loose him, because I want you to make sure you know there were no tricks involved here. All I did was stand back here, and you take those, the, the gauze off of him that they wrapped him up with, and you see that it was really Lazarus there and not some imposter. God orchestrated this event to make it undeniable. Undeniable, the way all those people were there. And so what are the responses to this event? We talked about this a little bit last week. The first response is belief. Uh, Verse uh, 45, I believe it is. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and who had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. During the life and ministry of Jesus, many people believed in him. We read about this response to the miracle of Jesus several times. We read it in a verse like this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. People saw the impact of Jesus. They saw the power of Jesus. And they said, wow, this is the guy. We're going to believe in him. Uh, To some extent today, people come to faith in Christ through the witness of changed lives. People see what God can do, not only hear the truth, and it has an impact on them. Many people believed. But that's not the only response. Of course, the second response is one that I've chosen to call rejection. Look at verse 45 again. Many believe, verse 46, but some of them, some of the people, not some of the believers, some of the Jews who had come believed, some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and so on. At the very beginning of verse 46 is a a connective word, that shows a contrast. Verse 45, many believed, but some people did something different. Clearly, God is trying to tell us they did not believe, and their word, their actions show that they don't believe. But here's a, a little phrase I'd like to challenge you with today. Not to choose is to choose. See, we could look at these people, some people would look at this and say, well, there's three categories here. There are the believers, and then there are the rejectors, which are the religious leaders, and then there's this category of people in the middle. All they did was go and tell the religious leaders what was going on. Friends, you either believe or you choose not to believe. When you are presented with the truth of Christ, that he is the divine son of God who took on human flesh that he lived a sinless life, that he died to pay for your sin, that he rose from the grave in victory over death, that he declares that because of your sinfulness you cannot earn your way to righteousness in heaven, and that he demands that you believe in him so that God will forgive your sin. When you hear that truth, you either choose to believe or you choose not to believe. Now, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, many of the people who choose not to believe come up with supposedly uh, theological arguments or intellectual arguments, but none of that, by, by this time in the life of Christ, he's answered all the questions and he fits exactly the prophecy of who was to come. The only reason these people don't believe is because they have chosen not to believe. Friend, if you're here today, and if you've never believed in Christ, it's you that is the problem, not Christ. 
You need to believe in Christ. To, cho- to not choose is to choose. It's like the old joke about the game warden who heard some old fisherman was fishing with dynamite. You know, you throw a stick of dynamite in the water and the fish float up to the top because they don't like that explosion. And you just scoop them up and go home. And he heard this guy was doing that. So he said, I'm going to go out and check this out. So he went out and found this fellow. Hey, what are you doing? I'm going fishing. Hey, can I go with you? Yeah, sure. So they went in the boat and they went out in the middle of the lake. He says, I heard you've been fishing with dynamite. Guy lights a piece of dynamite. He hands it to him. He says, you going to talk or fish? (laughs) You going to talk or believe? There's no middle ground here. There's no uh, encouragement in the scripture to, be, to wait. God says on the contrary, now, today is the day of salvation. Uh, the very nature of life needs to tell us about the importance of choosing for Christ now. The very fact that you could, you could drive over the pass and be buried in an avalanche in a, almost in an instant. It needs to say, you know what? I cannot count on tomorrow. I need to be right with God today. I urge you, if you're here and you've never chosen for Christ, that you need to do that today. You need to say, I believe in Christ my Savior. So third response and these are the usual responses that Christ got and the third one was the response of fear look with me at verse 46 some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said what shall we do you know we ought to read that real slow you know why because we we just skip over some really important stuff they went and told the Pharisees, what Jesus did. Now, wouldn't you think there'd be some Pharisee somewhere who'd go, no way. I gotta go check this out. But no. (laughs) They went and told the Pharisees what had happened, and the Pharisees gathered a council. They got together some of the rulers, some of the city councilmen, if you will, the people who had that rule of responsibility, the Sanhedrin was the proper name of this group of men who ruled the nation of Israel. What shall we do? For this man works many miracles. He must be the Messiah. No, that's not what they said, is it? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And that would be terrible. I mean, that's what they're saying. Everyone will believe, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, the chief priests, for those of you that may be a little newer to Christianity, the, when we see the term chief priests and Pharisees, the people, they are people who not only had religious authority, if you will, but they had political authority. Uh, the Romans ruled this part of the world and they let the nation of Israel have a certain degree of autonomy to, to carry out their own religious law. And so in that system, the chief priests who would have been like the high priest and others who had been high priest and, and other priests in their family, and then the Pharisees, they gathered together the council, probably a reference to the Sanhedrin, the 70 who were the ruling body, 
they had freedom to enforce the religious law of the nation. But if they had only been concerned with enforcing the genuine law of God, there would not have been a problem. Because when you have a ruling body, you say something isn't right, we're going to get the court together, we're going to present evidence, we're going to listen to the facts, we're going to make a decision. But that's not what they did, was it? They said, if we leave him alone, everyone will believe, and then we will lose our jobs and we will lose our nation. Their concern was self-driven. Our job, our place, our position of prestige and power. The idea is that Jesus would usurp their place. That's what they were afraid of, but it's not without genuine cause. Listen to these words. This is what they were really afraid of, and here's an example of it from John 6. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, truly, this this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. How do you make somebody king by force? Do you point a gun at him and say, you're going to be the king whether you want to or not? No, you put him on your shoulders in a big crowd of people and you parade through the biggest city going, Jesus is king, Jesus is king. Down with the Romans, up with Jesus. And that's what they were afraid of. In fact, Jesus didn't want this either because it was not time yet for the political, physical kingdom. It was time for the spiritual kingdom first. And he knew that if he just stood still, they were going to do this. And there would be this grassroots political uprising foisting him up as the king. And that's not what he was about. Not at that time. There will come a time when Jesus will rule and reign on the earth from the throne of David. But it was not at this time. But these folks, these Jewish rulers we're reading about in John 11, that's what they were afraid of. Because they believed what would happen was if if these people rise up and say Jesus is king and they start marching around and so on, the Romans will come around and say, oh yeah, and they will squash the nation of Israel like a bug. Now, even if this was a rational fear, a real possibility, we still see tremendous self-interest on the part of these fearful leaders. Because if they were the experts in the Old Testament law, and if they were supposedly waiting for the Messiah to come, and if it looks like he's the guy, so much so that the people are saying, he's the guy, he's the guy, wouldn't you go, you know what, if he's the guy, we can throw Rome off. But no. Because they didn't care if he was even the real Messiah. What did they care about? We will lose our place and our nation, verse 48. All they cared about was their own realm of rule and control. All they cared about was keeping their little bailiwick in place. I'm the senator or mayor or ruler of this little piece of dirt, and you can have it when you pry it off of my cold, dead fingers. And that's their mentality. So much so that even though, 
even though these responses are the normal responses, they take it to a whole new level at this point. And we read about their sinister hatred. The unbearable, the unbearable outcome that they envisioned was this. If we don't do something, everyone will believe in Jesus. Do you understand that? It wasn't just about losing their place and their nation. Verse 48, if we leave him alone, everyone will believe. Now we need to make no mistake about this. These folks were working off of the agenda of Satan. Now if you've been in this church long enough, you know that I'm not one of those guys who sees a devil behind every rock. I believe that the majority of the trouble we have in our Christian lives is from our own sinful nature and the temptations that rise up. But I do read in the scripture about a personal Satan, a created being of God, an angelic being who rejected God pridefully, and now he fights against God. And we can see it starting with uh, Adam and Eve, and we can see it right down through the ages. We can see him personally tempting Jesus, trying to get Jesus to take the short path to what God had already promised him. You know, he says to Jesus, if you just worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Well, God had already promised the kingdoms of the world to Jesus, but it was a long path through the, through the crucifixion, and Satan took, said, here, take the short path. I'll give it to you right now. So Satan is actively opposing God, and, and he actively opposes God through people in the world. I don't believe these people were possessed by demons, but the ideology, the selfish ideology under which they were operating is the ideology of Satan that he pushes around in the world. Every time God moves forward, Satan pushes back. Now, greater is he that is in you, God, than he that is in the world, Satan, and so Satan cannot win. We don't need to fear, but we need to understand that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, and he has great authority in our world, and these people were at least unwittingly serving the devil. I know that's an awful harsh thought, but look at this. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or, or seen plainly. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. God says this, if you walk in the righteousness of God as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. If you are not a believer in Christ and you walk in sin, you are a child of the devil. Now, I'm not here to insult you. I'm just here to say that's God's opinion. And these people were working off of the agenda of Satan. That's why there was such strong opposition they, they didn't realize it, but they were involved in the battle of the ages where Satan wants to stop the work of God. And the way that that comes out to us Christians in this day and age is this. Some people just don't like Christians. Nero blamed the faults of Rome and the downturn in the Roman Empire on Christians. <laughs> And there are people today who want to do the same thing. I was at my favorite breakfast place this week, just reading a paper, commenting to Randy Hill about something I'd read in a paper. And a person that I know but I really don't know 
gets up spouting some anti-Christian stuff about the war and how the Christians are all okay to go and kill everybody they don't agree with over there. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'm going, lady, I'm sorry, did I do something to you? Where does that come from? No, I, I don't believe she's demon-possessed. Don't get me wrong. I don't believe that for a minute. But the ideology that she is spouting is the doctrine of demons, that Christians are, are the reason for the problems in the world. We're worse than the Islamic fundamentalist. And folks, I just want to encourage you and warn you that this is the agenda of Satan. And it's not going to go away in your lifetime. <laughs> we, don't need to, we don't need to start carrying a gun. <laughs> Unless you, you know, maybe live in Custer or something like that. But. <laughs> if I was in Seattle, I'd say unless you lived in White Center. But, but, but seriously, there is a bigger picture going on here. This is just not some Jewish leaders fighting against Jesus. This is, this is Satan fighting against God. And he is using his children to accomplish his purposes, or to try to. And obviously, Satan didn't even win in the death of Christ because of what we're going to learn here in a minute, which is the real point that I'm getting to today. But there, there is not only this unbearable outcome. The unbearable outcome for them is, oh man, if everybody's going to believe in Jesus, that would be just terrible. And then there is this unbelievable plot where Caiaphas, verse 49 says, you know nothing at all. He just, he just says, you folks are stupid. You know, you're, you're all wringing your hands. He said, here's what should happen. Kill this man and save the nation. That's what he says. Now, he says that in light of what we've just been talking about. If these people make him king by force, the, the Romans will come and put down the uprising. He says, kill him and we'll save the nation. Now, remember, he's done nothing wrong. He's absolutely innocent. Not only is he innocent, but he matches the description of the Messiah. But in the self-serving wisdom of, wis of sin, it's acceptable to ignore the facts. In the self-serving wisdom of sin, it's acceptable to ignore the facts. These people said, hey, my livelihood is at stake. I don't care about the facts. This may happen to you, Christian because of this great battle between God and Satan. In the self-serving wisdom of sin, it's acceptable to ignore the facts. In the convoluted wisdom of sin, murder is sometimes necessary. You understand that that's what they're contemplating here. We're, we're, we're just going to kill him. You know, we need to read that real slow and say, you mean these people, the high priest, the duly recognized high priest of Israel is sitting there saying, let's just kill him. Because that will, that will make sure that my place stays secure. Yeah. In the convoluted wisdom of sin, murder, or you could put any, any name of sin in there. Number three, in the compartmentalized wisdom of sin, you could plot murder one day and worship God the next. Look at verse 55. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem... They, by the way, they always call it going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's on a hill. 
So no matter what direction you come from, you're always going up to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Just stop and read that real slow a minute. They went to purify themselves. Okay, we've been out here plotting murder against a guy we don't like, but now I'm going to get I'm going to get to Jerusalem early so I can have my ritual washing so I'll be just ready to offer sacrifice at the Passover time. That's compartmentalizing. That's when you take your life and say, "I know I've been living in sin over here, but I'm going to go to church and worship God." All the while entertaining the sin. That is only possible in a sinful mind, not in a righteous mind. In the compartmentalized wisdom of sin, you can plot murder one day and worship God the next. Now there's a marvelous outcome to this, and this is the good news that I'm getting to, the exciting news here. And it starts with an unintentional prophecy. Look at verse 50. Caiaphas, the high priest, says, nor do you consider that it's expedient or profitable for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now here is John, the writer of this gospel. Here's his comment on this. Now he did not say this on his own. The New King James supplies the word authority. You know, it's it's the idea that he didn't come up with this on his own. He did not speak it on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. Prophecy is a direct word from God. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. I've called this an unintentional prophecy because that's what it is. What was in the heart of Caiaphas? Murder and hatred. Now what came out of his mouth? Prophecy. Listen to these words about human activity from God. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Now that doesn't put a stamp of approval on your anger. But what it does say is that God is even to take this this hatred and anger of the high priest and his murderous desire and turn it into a prophecy. It didn't help Caiaphas out, but it certainly told us something important. Caiaphas hated Jesus and wanted him dead, and yet God used even his wrath to accomplish God's purposes. Listen to this. The haters of Christ were orchestrating his death, but God was orchestrating the possibility of their salvation. Isn't that like God? These people are saying, how can we kill him? And God's up there going, how can he save you? It reminds me of Genesis 50 where Joseph talks to his brothers in the end of that story and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. God used even the words of a a Christ hater to tell us something, that Christ 
was going to die for the nation. Look at verse 51 again. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Jesus died for us. It is expedient or profitable that one man die for the people, and let me just paraphrase it this way, so that the people don't have to perish, don't have to die. Back in verse 50, one, it is expedient that one man should die and not that the whole nation should perish. It's interesting even that he uses the word perish there because it reminds us of places like John 3.16. We need to believe in the Christ that God has sent so that we won't perish. Listen to these other verses about this wonderful truth. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep who gave himself for us that, we might re- that he might redeem us from every lawless deed in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, The word redemption means to buy back from the slave market of sin. Being justified freely by his grace through the price paid, that is, in Christ Jesus. The wonderful truth summed up in this intentional prophecy is that Jesus laid down his life for me. He shed his blood to pay for my sin and your sin. The Son of God gave his life to buy your freedom from sin. God the Father punished God the Son for your sin so that you could escape eternal punishment. And by the mouth of this wicked priest, we find out that it was expedient or needful or good or profitable for one man to die so that we didn't all have to go to hell. That's the... That's the option. Either Jesus dies for us or we die, not in a sacrifice that pays for our sin, but we die and just suffer punishment for the rest of eternity. The Lord's Supper commemorates that suffering. He said the body, the bread, excuse me, represents my body which was given for you. Jesus suffered tremendously in his physical body. And he said the blood represented by this juice is the purchase price of your salvation. The purchase price. What's your, what was your soul worth? What was your soul worth when Christ paid his life for you. It was worth about 50 bucks in a trip to the airport. What does God say about our souls before we come to faith in Christ? He says we are the enemies of God. Does that sound like somebody that you want to go out and lay your life down for? 
He says we were aliens, we were foreigners, we were outside the covenants of God. We're out here on the outside without help, without hope. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. God didn't look down and say, oh, your soul is so valuable, I'm going to buy it. No, he looked down and said, you're worthless. But I am going to pay for your soul anyway. I am going to give the life of my son for you. And now, now, this is what you are worth now. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were without value, and now you are of incredible value because God paid his son's life for your sin. What did Jesus say that we're supposed to do here at the Lord's Supper? He said we're supposed to remember him. We're supposed to remember him. What does it mean to remember Christ? It's not just, oh yeah, I remember Jesus. He's that guy that lived almost 2,000 years ago and died. No, it's I remember Jesus. He gave his life for me. I mean, if you were about to walk across the street and some guy pulled you back and saved your life from being hit by a car, would you remember that guy? Would his face be kind of burned into your brain? Yeah, and you go, wow, that guy saved my life. That's what Jesus is saying about this. We should be looking at it saying, wow, Jesus saved my life. It was, it was needful for that one man to die so that I wouldn't have to perish. We are supposed to remember him. He took this piece of junk soul and made it valuable by cleaning it up through forgiveness and putting a new life in through the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 11, God tells us that when we come to this table, we should participate in remembering Christ in a worthy manner. Now, we're not worthy because our souls are so valuable. Again, we all come to, we all come to the cross on the same level. We come saying, I am unworthy, and God makes us worthy. So we become worthy, first of all, by believing in who Christ was and in what he did. We become worthy by acknowledging our sin and our inability to save ourselves. We come to Christ and say, you are the Savior. I am a sinner. I believe in what you did for me. I cannot save myself. And when you do that, there is a transaction of faith with you and God and God makes you righteous, and you are now worthy to participate. As a believer, you become worthy by confessing your sin, by being right with God, and by eating and drinking out of a grateful heart, saying, wow, Christ died for me. We're going to sing a wonderful old hymn and a new praise song, as we remember Christ, I urge you to use this time to be ready, to be prepared. If you're not worthy, if you've never believed in Christ, now is a wonderful time to believe. And if you are a believer, to confess your sin and to be right with God. Let's sing.